Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. And this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. All right. Hello there, Dr. Dick and Weatherby. Welcome to episode four of Optimal, the podcast. And today we are going to be talking about vitamin B12. We're going to be doing an in-depth review. So some of the things we're going to be doing, we'll be talking about the biochemistry of B12, talking about physiology of its actions in the body, how do we become deficient, and what are some of the dysfunctions and disease associated with deficiency. And then towards the end, we'll be joined by Beth Ellen DeLulio, who's done a lot of research on the biomarkers. We'll talk about how we can use some of this blood chemistry and signs and symptoms work to assess for deficiency. And finally, once you've uncovered a deficiency, how do you correct it? So we'll talk about choosing the right type of B12, the dosage, food sources, etc. So this is kind of a big deep dive into vitamin B12. So glad to have you along for the ride. So let's get started. What is the biochemistry of vitamin B12? So this is something you're going to want to talk to your patients about. So having an understanding, a little bit of background in the back of your mind can help you have a more effective communication with your patient. So vitamin B12 is a cobalt-containing compound known as cobalamin. It is synthesized by bacteria, yet it is an essential vitamin to humans. So the term cobalamin is a generic term for something called a coronoid, and this contains what is known as a corin nucleus. Now, I don't have the luxury of being able to show this to you on the screen, but it's a pretty cool little molecule when you take a look at it. So B12, a water-soluble vitamin, occurs naturally in three different forms. And believe me, this is not the same as cyanocobalamin. So the three forms that occur naturally are methylcobalamin, adenosylcobalamin, and hydroxycobalamin. Now, you may ask, well, what about cyanocobalamin? I see cyanocobalamin in my Walgreens or my patient's Walgreens formulas. Well, cyanocobalamin is a synthetic form of vitamin B12, and it contains a cyanide moiety that must be removed before being utilized in the body. And cyanocobalamin is especially contraindicated in smokers. So if you imagine cyanide, not a great molecule to have floating around in your body, yet here we are supplementing with a synthetic form of B12 that contains a cyanide moiety that then has to be removed and your body has to get rid of it. So one of the contraindications for using cyanocobalamin is found in smokers who are already exposed to quite a bit of cyanide when they puff on that cigarette. Research indicates that all forms will be converted simply to cobalamin, which in turn can be converted intracellular to either methylcobalamin or denosylcobalamin, which are the biologically active forms of B12. So we'll talk a lot more about the types and the forms of B12 supplementally at the end of this podcast. But interestingly, even if you consume methylcobalamin or adenosylcobalamin, the methyl and adenosyl moieties will be removed, and then the methylcobalamin and adenosylcobalamin will be reassembled within the cell. Methylation of cobalamin depends on the availability of something called 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, or MTHFR. 
Now, an insufficiency of this can contribute to insufficiency of methylcobalamin within the cells, and that is something that we take a look at from a genetic perspective because some people are poor methylators and so don't have the ability to do this particular process. What about the physiology and actions of B12 in the body? Well, body stores of vitamin B12 are maintained approximately around two to three milligrams. Entrohepatic circulation, so that's where we have the recirculation of nutrients through the liver, can help conserve the approximately 0.5 to 5 micrograms of B12 that is released in the bile each day. So this is kind of a, an interesting thing that happens. So the bile is an excretory product, and within that bile, sometimes are molecules that the body doesn't necessarily want to get rid of, but it needs to put it into the bile. And there we have this enterohepatic recirculation. It gets reuptake through the digestive lining and comes back into the liver for reuptake. So an abrupt decrease in B12 intake, because you've got this storage form, it's a very small amount, an abrupt decrease in B12 shouldn't cause an acute deficiency in most individuals. What happens when you eat B12? Because B12 is something that you do need to get from your food. So it has to be liberated through adequate chewing and then processed at the gastric level. And it's a low pH environment created by hydrochloric acid in the stomach, enables specific gastric enzymes to kind of cleave that B12 from food sources. Dietary B12 is bound in the saliva and in the upper GI tract by the carrier protein called haptocorin and transfer to gastric-derived intrinsic factor, which facilitates its absorption in the distal ileum. Haptocorin comes into play again in the serum, where it carries the majority of B12 along with B12 analogs. However, it is the carrier protein transcobalamin, which actually facilitates the uptake of B12 into the cells and is measured in most specific for B12 deficiency. Now, an estimated 20 to 25% of cobalamin in circulation is bound to transcobalamin. So this complex is called hollow transcobalamin. Keep that one in the back of your mind because Beth and I will be talking about that later on. This is an active form available to cells and is actually when you measure it, I'm kind of giving it away right now, but when you measure hollow transcobalamin or hollow TC, it is actually one of the best biomarkers for B12 deficiency. Holotranscobalamin is found to correlate well with erythrocyte B12 because you obviously want that B12 in the cell itself. Vitamin B12 fundamentally functions as a cofactor with profound effects on human metabolism. I'm just going to run through some of these for you. You're probably familiar with a lot of them, but it's always worth hearing them again because when you're talking to your patients about why you might want to ask them to supplement with B12 or even do injectable B12 if they're found to be very deficient, you're going to want to talk to them about this. So it functions as a cofactor for enzymes involved in many, many biochemical functions, including macronutrient metabolism, myelination, the processing of S-adenosylmethionine, and homocysteine. Interestingly enough, without B12, homocysteine can accumulate. And we'll talk about homocysteine at some other point. We'll be doing a podcast on endothelial dysfunction probably in the new year. But this homocysteine can accumulate in the blood it causes an increasing risk of cardiovascular disease. In fact, it sort of acts like a Brillo pad on the intima of the lining of your arteries. Vitamin B12 is recharged by the methyl tetrahydrofolate form of folate. B12 and folate support the formation of blood cells, so hemopoiesis, which is the formation of blood cells, very much facilitated by the presence of B12 and folate. B12 as methylcobalamin is involved in childhood brain development. Again, something that you might want to think about, especially with your pregnant patients, 
but also with your pediatric cases as well. B12 deficiency can lead up to a buildup of methylmalonic acid and the disruption of metabolism of carbohydrates, fatty acids, amino acids, urea, neuronal myelin as well. And interestingly enough, elevated methylmalonic acid is more specific for B12 deficiency than elevated homocysteine, has two other pathways are available for processing homocysteine. And we'll talk again, I'll not just give you a little bit of a preview to what's coming, but in the biomarker section, we'll talk about this really cool index where you can look at homocysteine, methylmalonic acid, serum B12, and holotranscobalamin. It's a really cool way of looking at B12 deficiency. The Corin ring, again, I can't show you the actual molecule of B12, but if you have go off to Wikipedia or somewhere, you can take a look at it. It has this Corin ring structure, and at the base of the cobalamin molecule is somewhat similar to the ring structures at the base of heme and chlorophyll. So what's interesting is that humans and plants are using this ring-like structure that has a molecule, usually a mineral, right in the middle of it. So for the Corin ring in cobalamin, that is cobalt, in heme, that is iron, and in chlorophyll, it's magnesium. So again, I love thinking about how biochemistry evolved and how we evolved to become who we are in the cells in our body and looking at these molecules themselves. And so looking at the molecule of cobalamin with its cobalt right in the middle of it and a similar structure for heme and chlorophyll as well. All right, so what are some of the specific functions of active intracellular B12? So we have 5-deoxyadenosylcobalamin, truly essential for the Krebs cycle, the metabolism of carbohydrates, the metabolism of fats, the metabolism of amino acids. It serves as a cofactor for the mitochondrial enzyme methylmalonyl-CoA mutase. Methylmalonyl-CoA mutase catalyzes that conversion of methylmalonyl-CoA to succinyl-CoA. Again, I'm probably boring all of you that aren't interested in biochemistry, but I know for those of us that had to go through biochemistry and looking at the Krebs cycle and the tricarboxylic acid cycle and stuff like that, these words are sort of triggering either nightmares and horrors or excitement about the wonderful way that the body has evolved to create energy. So this conversion is an important step in what we call the oxidation of odd chain fatty acids and the catabolism of ketogenic amino acids as well, and ultimately essential for myelin synthesis and maintenance. That was about adenosylcobalamin. Now we're going to talk about methylcobalamin. This is another form of this cobalamin molecule with a methyl structure on it as well, essential for nucleic acid synthesis, cofactor for methionine synthase enzyme, facilitates the conversion of homocysteine to methionine, ultimately that remethylation process of taking homocysteine back into methionine. And remembering again, when we have high levels of homocysteine, we're at an increased risk for endothelial dysfunction, as well as cardiovascular risk and inflammation as well. Methionine is required, obviously, for the incorporation into proteins for the synthesis of the universal methyl donor called SAM. Methionine synthase reaction also converts methyl tetrahydrofolate to tetrahydrofolate. And then again, there's a ton of different information that we could talk about here. But I'm going to put a lot of this in a blog post. So if you're interested in learning more about the metabolism, the biochemistry of all of that, you can always come over and read about all these long words that we should all know about. So very, very cool information as well. So as you can see, B12 plays a really functional role in metabolism throughout the body, from blood to nerves to DNA. So sufficiency of this essential vitamin could be the deciding factor between disease and optimal health. This is why we wanted to take the time to kind of talk to you about the physiology, the biochemistry, the metabolism of this very, very important vitamin. So we'll be talking more about the insufficiency of B12. We'll be talking more about the biochemistry, the biomarkers. We'll talk about food sources, supplementation, and more. So definitely stay tuned to listen to more about that as we keep going.
So how do we get deficient? What is the way that deficiency in B12 happens? And what happens when we get there? So we'll talk about that right now. So the elderly status, elderly patients typically are deficient in B12, strict vegetarians, vegans, people with a lack of intrinsic factor have been traditionally recognized as the main causes of B12 deficiency. However, additional causes have been recognized, including poor appetite, insufficient intake, restricted intake of animal-based products, impaired absorption, drug-induced depletion, genetic variation. So it's not just about being elderly and vegan and having a lack of intrinsic factor. There are other things as well. So in general, bioavailability of B12 is going to depend on gastrointestinal competence, your age, and also your single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. SNPs can have an effect on the absorption, transport, uptake, and intracellular metabolism B12. Those with the genetic SNPs in the metabolic pathway that process B12 may be unable to metabolize cobalamin or cyanocobalamin. So again, let's take a look at some of the causes. Alcohol abuse, gastrointestinal disorders, so there could be everything from ileal resection, gastrectomy, bariatric surgery, and things like that, hypochlorhydria, atrophic gastritis, malabsorption due to lack of intrinsic factor. So remember, in the gastrointestinal system, so those of you that are using the software and the functional health report we produce from blood work, remember, we give you a pretty good output of what's happening at a GI level as well. Also, inadequate intake. This could be due to a poor quality diet. It could be um, anorexia. could be strict vegetarian or vegan diets. Remembering that B12 in your diet comes primarily from animal-based proteins, animal-based foods. What about impaired absorption? So there's a couple of different things we want to take a look at. There's gastric phase impairment. So this is the decreased production of intrinsic factor, insufficient gastric acid to cleave B12 from food. That's uh, hypochlorhydria. And then what about an intestinal phase? We're moving beyond the stomach down into the small intestine and the large intestine. Some people have surgical resection of the terminal ileum. So the terminal ileum is where B12 is absorbed. So if you've had a surgical resection, you've had parts of your ileum removed, you're not going to be able to absorb your B12 that efficiently, especially in the GI. What about inflammation of the terminal ileum? A lot of inflammatory diseases of the small intestine will affect this as well. And then finally, elderly status. It is true, the elderly have a far more difficult time absorbing B12. What about some genetic disorders such as transcobalamin deficiency, those SNPs we talked about, also infections with certain gastric bacteria such as H. pylori, people with Giardia, and that sort of thing. And then finally, we have drug-induced nutrient depletions. There are certain medications that our patients could be on that predispose them to be more likely to be deficient in B12. So that would include antibiotics, protein, proton pump inhibitors, histamine blockers. Those are the two things that block the production of HCL. If you can think about how important HCL, that gastric acid in the stomach to cleave the B12 from the food, well, if you have an alkaline environment in your stomach, you're much more unlikely to be able to cleave that B12 from food that you're eating. Also, a metformin, nitrous oxide, causes irreversible oxidation of methylcobalamin. So according to the RDA guidelines, up to 30% of adults over the age of 50 often have malabsorption, reducing the absorption of B12, 1% of what is digested. In such cases, an individual would have to just up to 240 micrograms of B12 to absorb about 2.4 micrograms. So the amount that they're intaking, if they have these issues, just to absorb a hundredth of what they're taking in. So that's an interesting statistic right there. So there are specific conditions that impair B12 absorption. This would be inflammatory bowel disease. Remember, I talked about inflammation of the terminal ileum. 
Well, things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis can predispose you to not be able to absorb properly. Anyone with celiac disease that is active generally have malabsorption issues. Gastric inflammation, something that we take a look at in the software as well, this is oftentimes caused by H. pylori. And then we also have autoimmune atrophic gastritis. Autoimmune pernicious anemia is thought to be relatively rare, but it is something to take into consideration as well. Some B12 can be absorbed through mucous membranes, such as the mouth or the nose, providing alternative routes. So when I was in clinic in my training, we did a lot of B12 injections. But also nowadays, with sublingual forms of B12, can become a very, very common, easily supplemented form of B12. Pop it under your tongue, suck on it, and get that sublingual absorption. Now, I'd be remiss to not mention vegetarianism and veganism in this conversation. So even moderate restriction of animal-based foods may negatively affect your B12 status. Now, omnivores tend to have better B12 status than those who avoid meat, fish, and poultry, but consume eggs and dairy. So that's your lacto-ovo-vegetarian. Vegetarians who avoid meat, fish, poultry, and eggs actually had the worse status than those who completely avoided all animal-based foods, such as vegans who had the worst B12 status. And again, come on over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. We've got a blog post with some of the references that will lead you to the discussions about vegetarianism and veganism and why vegans had the worst B12 status. There are certain diseases for B12 deficiency. So if you are deficient in B12, it's long-standing. It can actually be quite debilitating and even life-threatening as it can cause demyelination of nerve cells, bone marrow failure, as well as, of course, anemia. We have B12 deficiency anemia. So both the red blood cells and white blood cell precursors are dependent on both folate and B12. When you have decreased output of those will happen when you have a B12 deficiency, which is long-standing. Although the liver can store a substantial amount of B12, the prevalence of B12 deficiency can be quite surprising. So what are some of the other things that people deal with? Well, they have neuropathies very much associated with B12 deficiency and as well as what we call megaloblastic anemia. So these are all readily realized consequences of B12. People who have neuropathies, very, very painful. And then, of course, we can measure the MCV in the blood. MCV tells us if it's too high, too large, large cell anemia also known as macrocytic anemia or megaloblastic anemia, is a sign of B12 deficiency. Also, we can get hypersegmented neutrophils, so 1% or more with six lobes or 5% with five lobes. So they actually look at these neutrophils under the microscope, and you would oftentimes in a peripheral smear get a report, a hypersegmented neutrophil seen, large immature red blood cells as well. We can also see bone marrow changes seen with B12 deficiency, this might be mistaken for early stages of acute leukemia and that sort of thing as well. Neurological deficits due to B12 insufficiency are often present without the occurrence of megaloblastic anemia. So that's something to consider, that people may have signs of B12 deficiency or B12 insufficiency that is giving them neuropathies and neurological conditions. But when you go check the blood, especially when you're looking at it through the standard lens, which tells you that an MCV could be as high as 103, I say if anything above 90 is to me a trending towards megaloblastic anemia. So it's a great opportunity for then to do some further testing to make sure that B12 is not something that you want to treat. It's so easy to treat, so cheap, that why wouldn't you do a little testing and then do some treatment as well? Again, in the blog post, we'll talk a lot about insufficiency of B12, a lot of the signs and symptoms. Some of them obviously would be this fatigue from anemia, loss of appetite, 
cardiovascular symptoms, cognitive impairment, there's actually a very, very long list, which we'll include in the blog post, of a lot of the symptoms and clinical manifestations as well. So let's take a look quickly before we dive into biomarkers, what the stages of B12 insufficiency are. So there's a few events in the blood. So we'll have an increase in the plasma methylmalonic acid concentration and urinary methylmalonic acid excretion. That is a sign of B12 insufficiency. We will get a decrease in serum holotranscobalamin and a decrease in serum B12. And again, when we get Beth on the line, we'll talk more about those biomarkers together. So increase in plasma methylmalonic acid, decrease in serum holotranscobalamin, decrease in serum B12, increase in plasma homocysteine concentration, reduction in red blood cell B12, hypersegmentation of nuclei and neutrophils, signs of omegaloblastic anemia. These are abnormally large red blood cells. So you're going to see an increase in your MCV and you will see an increase in your MCHC, the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. You may start to see megaloblastic changes in the bone marrow, leading to potential issues with infertility. You will start to see weakness and fatigue. You'll start to see demyelination of the neurons, reduced conductivity of peripheral and central neurons. As this thing's going further, further down into deficiency, you're going to start seeing peripheral neuropathy, abnormal gait, abnormal changes in position sense, subacute combined degeneration and myelopathy brain atrophy, dementia, depression, memory loss, and psychosis. So that's a pretty long list of things that are going to happen. So what I would suggest is we can look at the blood. This will tell us very early on that this is happening. Why wait until you're further down the road to a lot of these pretty horrific things to be dealing with when if we're concentrating and doing our job well by analyzing blood work and doing the functional analysis, we can say, hey, listen, you're not necessarily deficient per se, but you're in the early stages of B12 insufficiency. We would recommend one to two um, sublingual B12 supplements a week to bring up those levels. Hey, have an injection once a month. That could be really great. So insufficiency of B12, whether due to inadequate intake, impaired absorption, or genetic factors, can have pretty incapacitating consequences. So our recommendations before we dive into the biomarkers is to assess and address B12 status in individuals that are displaying some of these symptoms or biochemical clues that can indicate the possibility that B12 insufficiency may be present. And we'll talk more in a few moments when we dive into the biomarkers. So we're going to look at how we can assess for B12 deficiency using specific biomarkers. And then finally, we'll talk about You've uncovered early stages of B12 insufficiency. How do you have a conversation with your patient and your clients around bringing their levels of B12 back up again? So hope this has been helpful. And let's dive now into biomarkers. Okay, so let's dive now into the biomarkers and how we can assess for B12 deficiency. And I'm joined by Beth Ellen Delulia from Florida. Hi, Beth. Hello, hello. Thanks hmm. for joining us. And thanks so much for doing all of your work on this B12 we're going to be releasing some pretty in-depth blog posts based on some of the information that we've been covering in this podcast. So go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog, and there'll probably be four, maybe even five blog posts that can really dive into each of these particular sections. But what I wanted to do now is really start looking at biomarkers. Obviously, we're functional blood chemistry analysis is a big part of what we do at ODX. And we get a lot of questions really about B12 deficiency and biomarkers. So Beth Allen has done a really nice job looking at how we can 
use blood biomarkers to assess for B12 status. And the first thing, whenever we're looking at the clinical assessment, is obviously reviewing those signs and symptoms, but also being able to do an extended blood chemistry analysis. So, you know, the assessment of B12 can be quite complex, but maybe you could kind of go through some of those. What are some of the mitigating factors for when we're looking at a B12 deficiency from this blood perspective? Yeah, it was surprising some of the things that I found out. One of the things was that most patients that do present with B12 deficiency, they don't have anemia. They might not have to have anemia. And if the clinician waits till, you know, they have anemia or the B12 drops below standard range, there's a chance that the underlying physiology and metabolism of B12 has been affected. And that can affect the synthesis of DNA and even cell maturation, as we know. Mm-hmm. So you want to assess early assessment of the related biomarkers can identify the early stages of B12 insufficiency, even when people are asymptomatic. So we always want to, and again, look at optimal ranges. So don't wait till somebody's out of standard range because the damage could already be done. So, you know, the related biomarkers too, that they might identify as those who present with symptoms but their basic labs could be within the standard range. So again, that's why we like to use the optimal range because you might have symptoms, standard range is fine, and then they dismissed out of the office. Mm. So if they're already symptomatic, we have to dig deeper. And the mean corpuscular volume, right, is one of the things that is very easy to get on a CBC. If it's significantly elevated, though, even up to like 130, but your serum B12 is optimal, then you have to look beyond B12 deficiency and folate deficiency might be a compounding factor. So you have to look at the dynamics, right? And we know that of other biomarkers, not just one, you know, in this case, from the general blood work, the MCV alone won't diagnose the B12 deficiency. You have to look further. It could be a folate mm-hmm. deficiency. Other things too, if you have an iron deficiency, it could mask macrocytic changes in the cell, right? Because you get a lot of small cells and a lot of larger cells, and you might not realize that you have megaloblastic anemia at the same time as iron deficiency anemia. So it really always takes a more complex overall evaluation of the blood work. Some things too can be severe. Patients can have spinal cord degeneration or peripheral neuropathy because of B12 deficiency, but not have overtly abnormal hematological parameters that is going to flag, you know, B12 as a problem. So just the symptoms alone sometimes might mean you have to dig deeper. And this was interesting too, the severity of neurological impairment might not correlate with severity of the megaloblastic anemia, which is basically what we just said. Mm -hmm. They might not be presenting with an anemia, but they have all the symptoms of B12 deficiency. You know, you brought up an interesting point there, and it's something that I've talked about with clients and things. There's this current iron deficiency, B12 deficiency situation that's going on. So you've got, like you said, you've got your macrocytes or your big cells that are a sign of B12 deficiency or folate deficiency. And then you've also got a mix of small cells. In some ways, your MCV actually may be normal or <laughs> the small the mean, yep, yep, the mean. One of the things that I think that you could ask for is a peripheral blood smear and looking for um, ask for the degree of what's called anisocytosis. Anisocytosis is the variability in size of red blood cells. Mm-hmm. Okay. So oftentimes that can actually be really helpful. If you look on sometimes CBCs and maybe their counting machines or whatever it is that they use to count the size of these cells will actually say, hey, listen, there are small cells and large cells. Mm-hmm. The degree of anisocytosis is quite large. We would recommend that the pathologist or whatever, whoever it is actually looks at these under a microscope. So you can kind of get almost a written narrative as well, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, didn't want to stop you there, but I just thought no, it was that's kind of good. Point. Yeah. 
Well, again, the point is to dig deeper, dig deeper. If people have these symptoms, you don't want to overlook a B12 insufficiency or deficiency. They have to dig deeper, you know, and, and that's why we love, right, our optimal ranges because you say, right. oh, something's going, you know, out of whack. It's, it's going in one direction or another. And we want to follow that. So I would encourage people to always dig further. To that point, though, if we're looking at optimal ranges, I mean, obviously, the research that you're looking at, they don't necessarily have an idea of this concept of optimal ranges. They, they kind of give you the ranges that they see satisfying their clinical outlook. So what is sort of a deficiency cutoff, would you say, for B12 deficiency? You know, I mean, it varies where we have our optimal yeah, range, but right. there's the U.S. Institute of Medicine cuts off the B12 deficiency or the cutoff is 203 picograms per ml. Or That's serum B12. Serum B12 at 203. But researchers recognize there's an inverse relationship between adverse outcome and a serum B12, even when it's at normal levels. Right. So that cutoff, you know, you're getting quite deficient down at that level. And sometimes I I've think seen, so, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and even the hospital setting, you know, I'm looking through the blood work and sometimes it will say, you know, B12 can have symptoms even, you know, as it drops below 300. So there's a little caveat even in the blood work that's posted in the labs in the hospital. So they're picking up the fact that you don't have to be fully deficient to have some symptoms. And other things too, other markers could start to get affected. There was one study that said, or source that said, adverse outcomes can include increase in homocysteine and increase in methylmalonic acid as serum B12 drops below 542 picograms per ml. Right, which so, is well within that normal standard range. Yes, yes. And within the Institute of Medicine would say yeah. that's a fine level. But yeah. when you look at these other markers that could very well in methylmalonic acid for the most part, unless it's renal insufficiency, is related to B12 and homocysteine could be related to B12 deficiency. Yeah. So yeah, we have to look and see if it drops in this case below 542 picograms per ml or 400 picomoles per liter. And again, the homocysteine, of course, it's not exclusive to B12 deficiency, but we know as levels go up, no matter what, they need to be investigated further. Even above nine definitely should be investigated further. Mm -hmm. Atherosclerosis increases progressively with a homocysteine level above 11. And, you know, it used to be acceptable to have a homocysteine of 15. Oh, it still is. I mean, most labs, they're high and normal for homocysteines are about 12 to 15. They need to take your course. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in the software, I I think anything above 7.2, you should start like really thinking about this. I know you've Mm -hmm. been doing all the work on endothelial dysfunction. We'll probably do a Mm -hmm. podcast and and some posts on that. But yeah, the risk of having, basically having a Brillo pad floating through your your arteries causing damage to the intimal cell lining and stuff. Yeah, not a a good thing. Yeah. So hopefully people will start to look for, clinicians will start to look for insufficiency. You know, don't wait to follow what the U.S. Institute of Medicine, I hate to say it, says. But even I have to say, some of the labs, when you look at where they got their information, sometimes it's posted right on the lab results, and it's based on 1980s research, you know, without being updated at all. And we know that, and we have found, I have found, updated research that gives more optimal levels and more optimal ranges, but it's not being reflected in the standard labs, unfortunately. So we're talking here, I mean, you did mention this, like, Obviously, serum B12 is somewhat considered to be the gold standard on some level by probably most. If an allopathic mm. physician is going to try and check for B12 deficiency, they probably want a serum B12. But what you're pointing to mm-hmm. is that we need a lot more biomarkers. And you've already mm-hmm. mentioned homocysteine. You've already mentioned methylmalonic acid. Tell us a little bit about holotranscobalamin. I know that that's you know, a pretty important biomarker for us to look at. It's in the software now. Oh, if you can't forget MCV, we mentioned as well as another biomarker. Yes, definitely. 
So what are your thoughts on holotranscobalamin after you're doing all this research as, as something that we probably should be paying attention to in order to be able to sleuth out those hidden B12 deficiencies? Yeah, definitely, because that's about 25% of serum B12 is being carried on the holotranscobalamin. And that is considered the best marker for early B12 insufficiency or B12 deficiency. So the holotranscobalamin really would be, and it's still you still should use more than one biomarker as recommended, but that would really be and should become the gold standard. It's actually where it's carrying the B12 that's going to get dropped off to the cells and get delivered to the cell. And then, of course, in the other parts of the, the blogs that we've posted, we talk about the physiology of what happens when B12 gets inside the cell and things like that. But the holotranscopolamin is the complex of transcopolamin and the active B12 being carried in the blood. That's really your gold standard. If that's low, you pretty much know there's an insufficiency there. And you can pick it up early, and that's the beauty of that. So in the blog post, you will, as a ruthless plug for my blog or our blog, mm-hmm. optimaldx.com forward slash blog, we're going to have this conversation as a blog post, and we have the biomarkers that we're looking at here, serum B12, polytranscobalamin, homocysteine, MCV, methylmalonic acid, mm-hmm. and RDW. And uh, we've also got our optimal ranges based upon the, the various different research. I wanted to mention too, if I might, that the holotranscobalamin actually correlates very well with the erythrocyte B12, the oh, red blood cell B12. So we do want to know what's going on in the cell, and that's the best factor to look at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people like, you know, serum is really good, but it's not necessarily the best. You really, Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't want these nutrients floating around. We obviously do want them floating around our bloodstream. That's not the right thing to say. But, you know, you don't want to just rely on what's floating through the blood as Mm -hmm. tell you what's happening at the tissue level. So Mm -hmm. I call it in the pantry. I want to know what's in the cell. Uh, Yeah, in the pantry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's That's a good one. So given all of that, we've got serum B12, holotranscobalamin, homocysteine, MCV, methylmalonic acid, and RDW. You came across a really cool wellness <laughs> score, um, mm-hmm. Betazoff's wellness score. Turned From to- mathletes. Mathletes could probably look at this quickly and <laughs> figure it out. But I'm not a mathlete. <laughs> so this actually was an article. I've got it here, Beth. It's mm-hmm. Betazoff. The article is called Combined Indicator of Vitamin B12 Status, Modification for Missing Biomarkers and Folate Status, and Recommendations for Revised Cut Points from the Clinical Chemistry and Laboratory Medicine of 2015. So we'll have a link to that in the blog post. I thought this was fascinating because someone who, mm-hmm. who loves algorithmic analysis of things, there's a pretty cool little algorithm here. I'm out, I'll do my best to uh, kind of walk us through it and, and mm-hmm. tell me if I'm off base here. But So Fedozov's score is basically, what he's looking at is holotranscobalamin multiplied by serum B12. And he's looking at the log 10 of that. And then he's dividing that by the MMA multiplied by the, gosh, what is the H? Homocysteine. Oh, sorry, homocysteine. Uh And then, so that's a formula right there. And then you take away an age factor. And it's pretty cool. So you obviously have to have holotranscobalamin. You have to have serum B12. You have to have methylmalonic acid. You have to have homocysteine. I would say those are the four big guns Uh of B12 deficiency, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. So then when you look at this score and, you know, I'll talk to my, uh, to Shane, my programmer to see if we can get this put into the system. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. So I'm just looking here, it can be broken down into diagnostic levels, but it's really cool. It kind of talks about, you know, everything from elevated B12 to adequate mm-hmm. B12 to low B12 to possible B12 deficiency to probable B12 deficiency, which is all the language that I like to see on the reports that we do. Yep. Again, this will be posted in the blog post. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that stood out to you from that work? Well, the subclinical, too. This is just a slightly low B12. It wasn't even all the way down to clinical deficiency, but subclinical deficiency 
It said no hematological changes, but subtle neurological impairment. And that should scare people. (laughs) Because if something is affecting the brain, we actually have impairment. And this is just subclinical deficiency. I think B12 is definitely something that needs to be looked at. Anybody with brain changes, dementia, they should be assessed at least one time, maybe annually, for B12 insufficiency. Don't wait till they're deficient. Don't wait till the damage is done. Yeah. I thought this was really interesting. So one retrospective mm-hmm. cohort study of a mixed population utilizes the four biomarker Fetazov formula, mm-hmm. which you're going to be sick of me saying this, serum B12, <laughs> holotranscobalamin, homocysteine, and, and methylmalonic acid, and provided, quote, marker cutoffs for detecting subclinical B12 deficiency with a sensitivity or specificity of 99% of the given specificity and sensitivity, as well as the optimum decision point with a whole series of different results. So Pretty cool. <laughs> I would have yeah, to say, I love this. Cut and dry, yep, yep. So it's out there, you know, and people, and again, I've had arguments with executives of insurance companies about yeah. how important this work is. And it, you know, we always got to defend ourselves. And we have the most recent, in a lot of cases, the most recent research that the insurance companies, the lab companies, they're not catching up with this. And they need to, and need to, not before they give us, you know, push back and say, well, why would you create an optimal range? Well, ask us and we will show you, you know, give us a chance to share this with you because they're not looking at it themselves, which I find frustrating. Yeah. I mean, would you prefer to pay a little bit now or a lot later? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They they look at everything (laughs) through an an economic lens. Obviously, we've been focusing a heck of a lot on B12 deficiency itself. Can you talk about its role potentially with oxidative stress? Some of the things that you found there? Yeah, that that's another thing to look at because markers of oxidative stress might also be elevated in a B12 deficiency. And they did one study. It was kind of a small study. The serum B12 was pretty low. It was 211 picograms per ml. But those who had that very low B12, they had significantly lower glutathione and total antioxidant levels. And of course, significantly elevated maldonaldehyde levels, marker of oxidative stress. So that seemed pretty clear cut. And obviously for them, it was related to the B12 deficiency. So, you know, this, again, we're just talking a lot about metabolism, right? It's a house that's built on a foundation and all the parts have to be in place to hold the house up. And you have one thing go wrong in metabolism, then it's going to be like a domino effect really down the road. So oxidative stress and B12 deficiency, who'd have thought they'd go together, but there definitely seems to be an association there. And again, it comes back to me for nutrition. If you keep people on a healthy diet, 80% healthy, right? 20%, you can almost do what you want, but 80% healthy, plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, plenty of antioxidants would help to counter this oxidative stress that can contribute to so many things and so many diseases. So we get so much into the minutiae sometimes and we forget that, listen, get people on a really healthy diet and some of these things are going to clear up, you know, give us six months to a year and some of these things will just go away and they're not on their way anymore towards cardiovascular disease or metabolic syndrome. So again, a healthy diet to me is a foundation of healthy metabolism. And then, you know, we talked about sources of B12 and who potentially can be deficient. Talk a little bit about some of the research that you found on sort of the neuropsychological consequences of B12, especially in young vegetarians. Yeah, you know, and I know a number of people that are vegetarian and some that are vegan, and some people don't do well on a vegan diet, but they don't want to admit that. And there are philosophical reasons to be vegan. There are a lot of different reasons. 
But when people are getting sick from it, I think they need to be assessed and they need to have kind of a sit down and say, you have to get these nutrients from somewhere. So they tended, vegetarians tend to have low B12 and these neuropsychological consequences, especially in young vegetarians. And that one study showed that the mean level for serum B12 of the vegetarian study was 238 picograms per milliliter. We know that that is low. And they had a significantly higher methylmalonic acid because you don't have the B12 to make the enzyme to get rid of your methylmalonic acid. And they had significantly lower serum folate also. And those vegetarians had a significantly greater incidence of depression, paresthesias, peripheral neuropathy, and even psychosis compared to omnivores. So, you know, are humans meant to be omnivores? Can we get by with a vegetarian diet? Can some people maybe get by with a vegetarian diet and others not? So, you know, even if philosophically that's your choice is it for a diet, it might not be the healthiest one for mm-hmm. you. And that's hard to tell somebody, especially there are people for a lifetime that have been vegetarian, but then they have these issues, these health mm-hmm. issues. So they have to be talked to. And sometimes even I talk to someone about a supplement. And she's like, well, is this in it? Is that in it? I'm like, you need this. Please take it. You'll feel better. Maybe you have a neuropsychological event right now. Just please, you know, don't worry about this so much. Take the supplement, come back, you know, in three to six months and we'll talk about things. So they're very hesitant sometimes even to take a supplement because they don't want to think, oh my gosh, I'm doing something and my diet's deficient. I'm doing what I think is the right thing and my diet is deficient. But we do store, and again, it'll be in the blog post. So we do store not much, what, two or three milligrams of B12 in the body, but we do store B12. And so if it is an acute deficiency all of a sudden or acute reduction in intake, you won't have full-blown deficiency. But this long-term inadequate intake over time, they're not going to bounce back. Their stores are low. They don't have enough store. They're not consuming enough. They're going to have these neuropsychological consequences. One of the things that when we switch gears here and we'll talk about elevated B12, mm-hmm. it is something that we see and there's often this conversation about, wow, I'm pretty sure that my patient is B12 deficient, yet when I check mm-hmm. their serum B12 levels, it's elevated. Is there any anything in the research that you found that sort of speaks to that maybe? Oh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. And now one, one source said that they, you know, a serum B12 level above 1355, which is high might not be uncommon, but it could be related to different things. It could be related to binding protein issues. It could even be related to malignancy and leukemia and other things. So there's always a concern if it's even high above standard that it should be checked out. So you can evaluate unsaturated B12 binding capacity. It's called UBBC. And then you can take a look and find out what's going on. Are these people just not able to bind B12? Is it not getting into the cell? So there are some standard ranges to be able to assess the UBBC. And you can also look at haptocurrin. You can look at transcobalamin. You can look at autoantibodies to transcobalamin. That might be part of the problem. It might just be a functional deficiency. What's going on? Is somebody, and I always ask them this, and again, this will be part of their blogs, but are they taking a lot of cyanocobalamin? So I'm not a fan of that. You know, you have to get rid of that little cyanide moiety, but it also is less bioavailable. I had found some research that it is less bioavailable. So let's say people are taking tons and tons of cyanocobalamin, but they can't get it into the cell. So that could be a reason that, you know, the serum B12 is elevated and yet they have these signs of deficiency. And there could be a functional deficiency for other reasons too. And again, too, if it is high, the first thing to ask is, are you taking a ton of B12? Yeah, right. (laughs) Right, the, The easy thing. 
And why isn't it getting into the cell? Or are you just overdosing? Because everybody, you know, a lot of times people think a little is good and a lot is great. And sometimes a lot is too much. So first of all, find out if they're taking a heck of a lot of B12 and what type is it. And also check this serum, transcobalamin, especially if you can, and this binding protein. So you got to dig in deeper if you do see a higher B12, eliminate extra sources first, of course. But, you know, consider if there is a, uh, a functional deficiency. Mm-hmm. I'll look at the MCV. Is that high? Is the homocysteine high? Is the methylmalonic high? Because it shouldn't be if you have plenty of B12 floating around. So something's happening. Is so there a low? That, sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt you, but in that situation, mm-hmm. you'd have a seriously high serum B12, but their methylmalonic acid mm-hmm. also be incredibly elevated. Yeah. Which basically, can't take it up. Yeah, it's not being yeah, made into the enzyme. B12 you need. deficiency. Yeah, yep. very interesting. And you can see a low holotranscobalamin even with a high serum B12. So. It's always very dynamic and complex, so you have to dig a little bit deeper. And that's why, you know, when I hear that, oh, well, insurance will never cover that lab work, I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) again, do you want to pay a little bit now and not have to pay more later? That's where this, you know, cost benefit comes in. You catch things early and treat them and identify them for what they are too. Because again, if you have a functional B12 deficiency, you're going to have signs of B12 deficiency. Mm -hmm. You can have neurological signs and things. So I thought it was interesting too with oxidative stress, Oxidative stress could cause a local functional B12 deficiency in tissues. And that can be seen in diabetes and Alzheimer's, it said. And in such cases, glutathione or vitamin C might be of therapeutic value. So I really encourage people to read through these blogs, you know, for all the details, because it might just, you know, a light bulb might come on and it might help you to resolve an issue with a patient that was kind of a mystery before, let's say. Well, let's move on to... Probably my favorite part of what we talk about is like, how do we deal with these things? You know, as a clinical nutritionist, how do we correct B12 deficiency? How do we choose the right type of B12? What's the dosage? What's the food sources? I love this. Is the current RDA enough? I remember Jonathan Wright from the Tahoma Clinic up in Washington State. I went to see him many, many years mm-hmm. ago, and he talked about RDA actually stands for the Recommended Deficiency Allowance. <laughs> uh, so it's just enough to keep you from being deficient. Yep. Um, yep. So... What is the RDA for vitamin B12? How does that jive with, you know, us as functional medicine practitioners, nutritionists, naturopaths who are doing this work? What would you recommend? Maybe we'll start with the RDA and then we'll move through. Well, the RDA is pretty low. It's at 2.4 micrograms for the whole day. And that's assuming you have fully are able to absorb it well. Because some people, it's absorption problems that cause their B12 deficiency. They're unable to absorb it. But even at that, it's been challenged because even if that 2.4 micrograms is fully bioavailable, researchers suggest that that's really not high enough to keep optimal function of what B12 has to be used for. One study thought that at least four to seven micrograms of B12 a day was needed to positively impact methylmalonic acid, homocysteine, and also your holotranscobalamin levels. So that's pretty low. I know people, you know, some people need 500 to 1,000 mics, and we can talk about who they might be. Mm. But even for a healthy person, at least four to seven mics per day is recommended. And then some research, you know, in the past, they looked backwards and they said, well, we've probably consumed about 17.6 micrograms a day regularly. And that was more on like a paleolithic diet because B12 is only found, active B12 that we can utilize is basically only found in animal-based foods. So, you know, and it suggested that we had a lot more meat, fresh meat, you know, way back when. So we took in a lot of B12 over evolutionary time. Non-vegetarian adults in the U.S. consume about 4.6 to 6.3 micrograms of B12 a day. 
Europeans, they thought men took in about 3.8 to 9.3 mics a day and women about 3.5 to 8.8 micrograms a day. So those intakes are, you can see, a lot higher than the RDA. Again, the bare minimum to get you by. (laughs) We do efficiently recycle and retain B12. So, you know, if you have enough on board and you have enough in the pantry, you're going to recycle some of that. But again, you want to consume some every day. And again, animal-based foods are the best source. And if someone is not consuming animal-based foods, and there are some other sources, you can take a sublingual B12, 500 to 1,000 micrograms dissolved under the tongue, you should be able to get plenty that way. But sometimes, you know, they are concerned with what the ingredients are. So if someone's a strict vegan, you might have to look around to find something, but it's going to be hard to do because of the vegetarian sources. A lot of the vegetarian sources of B12, they go, well, I just get it from other sources from plant-based sources, but those are analogs of B12, or there might be imposters even. And that's a problem because those analogs of B12 can compete with bioavailable B12 for transport. Mm. And that can further jeopardize B12 status in a vegetarian. So, you know, you want to be careful, maybe go over somebody, what, you know, is it a philosophical issue? Would you at least take the supplement? It's not, you know, you're not consuming meat per se. So you want to work with somebody where they're at, but definitely if they have signs of B12 insufficiency that, you know, there are consequences down the road and they should be made aware of those. So anyway, so we do recycle and retain some, but you need a daily intake. And then we're going to list some examples of B12 sources. Three ounces of clams was very high, 84 micrograms per serving. Yeah, that's real high. Liver is high. (laughs) Yeah, that's plenty, right? Just do that. So if you have, you know, someone that's a a pesco or pesce vegetarian, they would do that, yeah. Liver is high, but I wouldn't recommend liver because it's where you find all those toxins. But, you know, fish, especially fish can be a source. So if people want to avoid meat and even want to avoid dairy and they want to avoid eggs, if they'll still eat seafood, they could probably get a good dose of B12. But some people need to be supplemented. You know, there are some people with pernicious anemia. Usually that's because of a lack of intrinsic factor. That's a very debilitating disease and they need high doses, but they used to have to get shots, but now they're finding a high dose of oral B12, a high dose, one to two milligrams, right? 1,000 to 2,000 micrograms a day or one to two milligrams should be enough to maintain someone who has pernicious anemia because you still will absorb B12 through diffusion or passive diffusion if it's a high enough dose. So someone with pernicious anemia needs a higher dose, one to two milligrams a day. And that can be taken orally or sublingually. That should suffice. A lower dose of 500 to 1,000 mics a day can be used even if someone doesn't have pernicious anemia. But if they have a low normal B12, you can give them 500 to 1,000 mics a day because the absorption decreases as the dose increases. And there's really no toxicity with B12. There's no upper limit recommended. So you're not bound to overdose on it. Someone with bariatric surgery Mm-hmm. A milligram or a thousand microgram dose of B12 orally should be okay. And that they should be on that for life now with bariatric surgery. So you want to make sure that that's being addressed because I know people who've had bariatric surgery and even the nutritionist in the office said, oh, just have a Flintstone vitamin or two and you should oh, be geez. fine. Yeah. Oh, I know. My eyes popped out of my head. So anybody with bariatric surgery is at risk for B12 deficiency. So you have to assess them and then you have to maintain them at a high enough dose so that they absorb what they need. And again, that could be passive diffusion. And again, I want to mention the cyanocobalamin. I'm not a fan. It does have inferior bioavailability. It's taken up less efficiently into the cell. 
It has decreased metabolic activity. And you have to take off the cyanide. Get rid of that cyanide. Yeah. yeah, get rid of that cyanide. <laughs> and especially smokers, you know, they're already overexposed to right. uh, cyanide. So it's recommended they don't take cyanocobalamin. And when you get into the different types, and I don't know if we will hear or we did in the other parts. Yeah, but I think yes. it might be worth mentioning because, I mean, I think so. You know, as physicians, <laughs> we're obviously presented with a number of different sources and types uh-huh. of B12. So uh-huh. at least being familiar with the three, probably the three main ones methylcobalamin, adenosylcobalamin, and hydroxycobalamin. Do you have a sense of those three, which might be the most bioavailable, which one we might want to steer our attention to? Well, well, I found something really interesting. I'm going to try to jump around a little bit here. And for the physiology of B12, it was interesting because within the cell, you're only going to find adenosylcobalamin and methylcobalamin. So no matter what kind you take as a supplement, you're going to break that apart and then it gets and into the cell. It again, yeah. yeah, and rebuild it in the cell. So the methylcobalamin and denosylcobalamin are really the only active forms yeah. in the cell. Um, yeah, and it depends. Like the methylcobalamin is a cofactor for methionine synthase. So it's going to be important in homocysteine right. and methionine metabolism. It facilitates the conversion of homocysteine to methionine. An insufficiency of the methylcobalamin can lead to a folate trap and a functional folate deficiency, all part of that, you know, methionine, homocysteine cycle. Methylcobalamin supports hemoptysis, formation of blood cells in conjunction with folate, and that's red blood cells and white blood cells, right? right? So the methylcobalamin is active in that. Methylcobalamin is one involved in childhood brain development. Then the adenosylcobalamin is essential to the mitochondrial enzyme and it's essential tricarbonyl, the Krebs cycle, metabolism, carbohydrates, fats, and amino acids. And also it's the adenosylcobalamin that's so essential to myelin synthesis and maintenance. You know, without that myelin sheath, you get nerve damage and breakdown. So it was these two different kinds of B12 that have two different functions in two different cycles in the body. But as far as supplementation, you know, you can take the methylcobalamin, you can take the adenosyl, you can take the hydroxycobalamin, they're all going to be converted eventually to methyl and adenosyl in the cell. But if you have a choice, I think you answered my question here, I think the choice would be find a supplement that has methylcobalamin or adenosylcobalamin. Mm -hmm. So that you have those cofactors, because then again, you're going to break off the cofactor and that cobalamin itself gets into the cell, right? So you might steal it from somewhere else, you might as well take it. Then you break it down, the cobalamin itself gets into the cell, then it restructures the methylcobalamin and the adenosylcobalamin. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I learned a lot about B12. I thought I knew a little bit, but now I know a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, you did some great vitamin B12 takeaways. So this will be, God, I sound like a broken record telling people to go to my blog, but yeah, this is going to be in the blog. So we'll go Uh through some of these. So it's an education, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I love the fact that you did this. This is really fabulous. So because I think it's, a great opportunity. If you're just going to read one thing from mm-hmm. these posts or take anything away from this podcast, these would be it. So sort of 20 different takeaways. Mm-hmm. How about I'll cover a few and then you jump in. Mm-hmm. Vitamin B12, essential micronutrient for humans. That's basically the bottom mm-hmm. line. Primarily found in animal-based foods. Depends on complex gastrointestinal transport and absorption. Most plant-based sources of B12 contain what is known as pseudo-B12 or inactive B12 analogs and should not be considered adequate sources of B12. So again, that's that discrepancy or that conversation that you're going to have to have with your vegetarian, your vegan clients. Mm -hmm. 
Vitamin B12 deficiency may be asymptomatic, may progress despite levels of serum B12 being within the normal standard range. Shout out to our optimal ranges. Mm -hmm. This next bit is a shout out to doing a more comprehensive view and a comprehensive look. Laboratory diagnosis of B12 deficiency should include at least two biomarkers, ideally include holotranscobalamin and serum MMA. You could also do serum B12. You can add homocysteine. That gives you your magic four for that. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember what his name was. Fedorov. Fedorov's <laughs> formula, which we will be looking at very closely for potential adding into the software. Early screening can be based on homocysteine of greater than nine. Additional testing for elevated methylmalonic acid can help distinguish B12 and folate deficiency and hyperhomocysteinemia. That's why all these interrelationships between these biomarkers mm -hmm. is so important. You can't just rely on serum B12 to answer all of your questions because an elevated serum B12 may actually reflect a functional deficiency or a pathological condition and should be investigated. I think the very first question you need to ask them if this is a new patient is, are you currently taking B12 or mm -hmm. supplements containing B12? Mm -hmm. If they're not, then you might want to go down that road. Genetic polymorphisms may affect B12 status despite adequate intake and absorption. Supplementation may actually be the best sources for B12 for some individuals. And again, we just talked about those looking either at hydroxycobalamin, adenosylcobalamin, or methylcobalamin. Mm -hmm. Absorption of B12 decreases as doses increase. Those supraphysiological doses may be indicated in those with impaired absorption or other complicating factors. Talk a little bit about high doses, Beth. Why don't you take it on from here? Yeah, high doses. Oh, I want to mention one other thing too. I'm sorry yeah. to put in the takeaway. I probably should have, but B12 is actually produced by bacteria. And that's how it ends up in the food. And that's why you don't find a lot of it in vegetarian foods. It actually ends up in the meat of the animal and the muscle of the animal. So it's produced by bacteria, but it's essential to us. So I thought that was very well, And then people were going, well, you know, you know, the cows are out there eating grass. And I could probably go eat grass. Well, you don't yep. have sick stomachs and a whole load of bacteria working on your heart, <laughs> Exactly. So. so higher doses. So somebody with especially bariatric or GI surgery, they might need those higher doses of one to two milligrams or 1,000 to 2,000 micrograms per day. Oral supplementation can suffice. You don't always have to go get that intramuscular shot, which is a lot of times a cyanocobalamin. Yeah. And that's a lot of times a milligram once a month, you know, intramuscularly. But now they're finding... Boy, does that feel good when you have one. Oh, no. <laughs> I've got... We used to do these big shots in a, in a center that I worked in. It had the B12 and a number of other things. But man, I always walked away with a bruise. But right. it helped to, you know, I was... Anyway really bad nausea and I got sick from something and the B12, the mix shot helped. It was amazing, but it had other things in it. But I had that black and blue. So yeah, the, yeah. it's not fun to get the <laughs> intramuscular shot. So oral, they find that the oral supplementation can work in sufficient doses, right? So you have to have enough so that it pushes into that passive diffusion and just gets absorbed passively. Let's see, it would be comparable to the intramuscular route. So people don't have to go and fill the shots. Ultimately, the natural forms, the adenosyl, the hydroxo, and the methylcobalamin are recommended. Some research recommended discontinuing cyanocobalamin altogether. That's mm -hmm. the synthetic form. And especially if someone, again, is a smoker because they're already overdosed with cyanide by choice. I know it's by choice, <laughs> but they especially need to avoid cyanocobalamin because of all that smoke cyanide. And again, the methylcobalamin, this source said that it is the least expensive and most readily available. And it should suffice. It should do the trick because, again, it's going to get converted anyway in the cell. And you can get the adenosyl moiety elsewhere in the body. So right. the methyl might be fine for folks to take on a regular basis. Wonderful. Wow. A lot of incredible information, a lot of great research. Thank you so much for contributing all that. So that's the end of podcast number four, a deep, deep, deep dive into B12 and B12 deficiency. 
Hopefully this has been really helpful for you. Again, sounding like a broken record, come over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. Sign up for our blog notifications if you want. We've got some good guides for you if you're interested in learning more about individual biomarkers. We've got a good biomarker guide. And dive into our blog. We've got a lot of great stuff. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And we love doing this work. I love having Beth doing all of this incredible work she does and joining me for the podcast. So thanks, Beth, very much. You're welcome. Not quite sure what we're going to do for next one. But surprise. Uh, come <laughs> surprise. Come December, we'll definitely have another episode of Optimal, the podcast. So again, Dr. Dick and Weatherby from Optimal DX and the ODX Academy. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. And we'll be with you again soon. Stay optimal. Mm-hmm.